You are listening to Under This Light, a revelation of Shakespeare and self brought to you by Seattle Shakespeare Company. Our guest today is the legendary Valerie Curtis Newton. Val, I'm just going to read off some of your uh, uh, amazing credits. Uh, You are the head of directing and playwriting at the University of Washington School of Drama, artistic director of the Hansberry Project. Your work includes um, work at the Guthrie Theater, uh, Seattle Repertory Theater, Intamon Theater, Denver Center Theater, West of Lenin, Theater Arts West, Taper Forum, New York Theater Workshop, you hold a BA from Holy Cross College and an MFA from the University of Washington. You have been awarded um, a grant from the National Endowment for the, for the Arts, a career development grant for directors from TCG, that's Theater Communications Group, the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation's Gilgood Directing Fellowship, Theater Puget Sound's Gregory Falls Award for Sustained Achievement, Seattle Times' 13 Most Influential Citizens of the Last Decade, and the Seattle Strangers' Genius Award in Performance and the Crosscut Courage Award for Culture. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel about all of that, first of all? You know, I, I told my students that um, it's what happens when you just do your work every day. You know, you look up and suddenly maybe you've accomplished some things. So I didn't set out to do most of those things, but I just do what I do every day and then people recognize would you say it's that old adage of, you know, of black folk, you know, you keep your head down and do your work? Yeah, I think that's true. And and I think that it's also um, the only thing you can do is the work that's in front of you. Right? You don't really have a lot of choices. Otherwise, things are not going to add up. You're not going to accomplish anything. You're just spinning your wheels. So, but yeah, I get, and now I'm in a place in life where I, I'm proud and I'm also a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> and why why the embarrassment? Um, because, you know, there's a way in which when people uh, recount your accolades, that it feels like uh, an, a, an accusation of arrogance. Like you think you're all that. And I'm like, no, I'm not all that. But those are all the things. Those are many of the things I've done. Okay. Well, facts are facts. Yeah. Well, let's rewind back a little bit and start with um, how did your relationship with theater begin? Um, Well, I I loved it as an art form as a child. I remember like being five or six years old and my mother taking me to the top of the Traveler's Tower in Hartford. Mm. And there was like a Snow White or something like that. And uh, it was outdoors on the roof and... Uh, it was a day with my mom, so I was very happy. And I liked theater from that moment. And my parents were really good about taking me to see things. Hmm. Then I went away to college, and uh, my roommate and I would, s- I played the guitar, and we would sing in our room. 
And uh, one day, one of our neighbors said, oh, you guys sing so beautifully. You have to come with me. And she dragged us to an audition for like the equivalent of a student organization's production of Godspell. <laughs> and I promptly did not get cast. <laughs> and my roommate did. And I thought, oh, my God, I am never doing that again. <laughs> and she said, yes, you are. There's an audition for this for the drama department. So she dragged me at 19 years old. She dragged me to this audition for the good woman of Sichuan. And I got cast at 19 to play the old woman tobacco shop owner. Uh, and I had to take an acting class and I got coached into doing the part. And, you know, every night I had to put shoe white in my hair and learn how to walk like an 80 year old. Um, but I found community. You know, I was an Air Force kid and always an outsider. And suddenly I was in the in-group and uh, I got to go to parties and sit around and sing and drink and uh, explore and curse and all that. <laughs> so uh, I fell a little bit in love with it. And then when I got out of uh, uh, college, my aunt said to me, there is this group operating out of my church called the Operation Push Performing Ensemble. Mm. And uh, you like theater, you should come and see it and maybe do a play with them. And by the time I showed up, my aunt had already told them I was going to be in this play. <laughs> so I did that. And then I was with the ensemble from the, from the time I was 21 until I left Hartford at 33. Oh my goodness. That's fantastic. So, um, you know, it, Val, you strike me as someone who's an introvert. Is that true? Very true. Yeah. So uh, community, finding community in, in theater, you know, having them, as you just said, like bring them out of your shell. I mean, like, was that invaluable to you? Was it scary? I mean, like, what was your journey there? It was, it was both those things, you know. It was a way, like many actors... As a director, what I, I recognize that there are some actors who got on, get on stage and get bigger. And there are some people who get on stage and play small. I was one of those people that played bigger. So the theater made a space where I could take up more room than I did normally in life. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it, it was very helpful because it allowed me to know that there was a persona inside me that could take up space when I needed to. Hmm. And so that became a kind of therapy for me. And also it eased the, the loneliness of the introverted kid who was always the new kid. Hmm. You know, as an Air Force brat, I'd roll up and I'd be the, the new kid almost all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to actually have a space that I could feel like I owned was very reassuring and it carried over into, into my everyday life even as an adult. So, you've left acting since, true or false? It's mostly true. 
<laughs> uh, so, I mean, where do you get to be big again? I mean, would you say that that's, that's where you, you put that space or hold that space for yourself in directing or is it in other art forms? And how does that exist now? Yeah, I think it is in other art forms. Um, I think it's a bit in directing, uh, and I've started to be uh, more of a writer. I'm, I'm a little more generative than I have been in recent years. Um, and I'm also, you know, teaching is a place where I can take up more space um, because I feel really driven to help people improve themselves as artists and to develop a relationship with their craft. And maybe more importantly for me these days, I'm teaching young people how to be resilient and courageous. And, uh, and all of those things feel bigger than me. And when you have a, a vision or a mission or a purpose that's bigger than yourself, it's easier to step into it with comfort. And I know myself now, and so I'm a lot less embarrassed uh, just generally in the world. So all of those things, I think, collaborate together to make me a little bit dangerous. <laughs> You're a lot dangerous in the best way possible. <laughs> um, so taking up space, do you think that comes with age too? Absolutely. Hmm. When I was in my 30s, I, um, I was working really hard and working all the time. Uh, like I was afraid I was going to be forgotten, lost, or ignored. And then I got into my 40s, and I realized that I knew some things and that I could lean on the things that I knew. And I got into my 50s, and I decided that I could um, speak some true things mm. And that I was not going to die by telling the truth. <laughs> uh, and then I got into my 60s and I had a, I, 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 I've had a little bit of a crisis of identity. Because, you know, all those uh, accolades you listed at the beginning, I was thinking, now what do I do? I've achieved this thing and that thing and the other thing. Now what do I do? And... um and there are younger people coming up, and this is really their time. Um, so it's like, when do you sit back and when do you go forward? When do you lead? When do you change direction? So I had to go through a bit of uh, identity crisis. The pandemic was the beginning of that. Um, but in the middle of it, I was like, oh, let's celebrate all the things you've accomplished. And then your new things will come, you know. And... Uh, it's a little bit of a tangent, but I've been living a lot these days in the words of the, the song, Order My Steps in Your Word, and thinking about my connection to something bigger than me, a higher power, and, uh, and how I'm going to you know, live out the rest of my days with that sort of as my mantra. Mm. Sounds like a balancing act. Yeah, I think life is that. You know, when you're in your 20s, you don't know what the hell you're doing. <laughs> 30s, you're able to, like, stand up and walk. Mm. 40s, you're starting to run. Mm. 50s, you're like, and where am I running to? Mm. And 60s, you're like, I'm tired. I need a rest. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help that the body is telling you that, too. <laughs> no, I mean, that's really, that's some, that's some truth right there. <laughs> Thank you.
this is basically <clears throat> a sh- foundationally a Shakespeare podcast. Will you tell us the interesting trajectory for yourself um, in relationship to Shakespeare, please? Um, I began with Maya Angelou. Mm. And um, I read her poetry, and then I read her autobiographies. And I just basically followed in her footsteps. She loved Poe. Then Poe led her to Shakespeare. I loved Angelou, and she led me to Poe, and Poe led me to Shakespeare. (laughs) Um, And so when I was like in the third or fourth grade, I memorized bunches and bunches of um, Shakespeare monologues. I knew like almost all the lines, all of Juliet's lines from Romeo and Juliet. And, wow. um, and then I got into the murderous, bloody ones, you know, Titus Andronicus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I was telling my mom, Mom, they cut out her tongue and then she wrote with these little stumpy arms. <laughs> my mother's like, well, what are you reading? <laughs> I'm like, that's Shakespeare. And then there's, you know, feeding... Uh, Tamara feeding the, the the boys to their father and all of those. So, um, and then there were the fun ones, you know, Midsummers and Twelfth Night and uh, and all of the, the pants rolls for women, you know, as a queer woman to get the idea that you could play opposite another woman and have love and real love, even though you weren't going to end up with her, but you could have real love for her. Um, all of those things. And then I got into college and I got pissed off at him. (laughs) That sounds about right. What happened? I got pissed off because he got elevated in a way that made him seem better than Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Mm. So, so elevated by whom? By academia. Mm -hmm. And And specifically, you know, are you talking about white institutions? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, when I was in college, you know, there was that, that sense that Shakespeare had things to say and everyone else was less than. And then, you know, it proved out in that the way that uh, there was always more money for Shakespeare than there was for every other kind of theater. Um, which was the opposite of Shakespeare's time, right? Because there was no money in Shakespeare's time. They were broke asses, you know, as broke ass. So um, I found that really interesting, you know, to be to watch people spend hundreds of dollars on yards of fabric to make costumes. And I'm like, well, but what if you just went to, you know, so-so fabric and work from there? Yep. Joanne's uh, is right down the street. Exactly. <laughs> you don't have to have hundreds of thousands of dollars in that robe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I rebelled instinctively against the Eurocentricity of the elevation of Shakespeare. I don't want to deny the craft of it. It's not easy to write in iambic pentameter or specific blank verse. Um, and um, I, rec- I learned, they taught me that Shakespeare wrote stories that weren't even his mm-hmm, absolutely so he went back in in his tradition and found stories to tell told them artfully but they weren't original they weren't new um 
And somehow that got elevated and no one was ever teaching us about the roots of Black theater or even how Western theater began out of an African uh, tradition through Greece to Rome and so forth. So, uh, yeah, it just pissed me off. And I took it personally against Shakespeare himself, like he had stolen something from me. <laughs> and now I realized it wasn't Shakespeare who was stealing from me. It was his acolytes. Mm, yeah. And, uh, and so I worked really hard to have my own thing, to learn about my own people and the own, my own history of theater, to know how far back black theater goes. And mm-hmm. in, in the United States, particularly, like what its, what its trajectory was, what its seeds were. And so I became sort of self-taught uh, in the history of black theater because of William Shakespeare. So um, I know all my Shakespeare stuff. Why? Because I was educated in this country through our educational system. And, um, and I wanted to know the sort of lingua franca of the industry. Mm-hmm. But it was more important that I know myself, that I got to know my own history and understand the tools that were used by my predecessors and ancestors to allow our art to survive. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you then at that point moved away from Shakespeare um, to find yourself, to find your own voice through your artistic predecessors? Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Um, and I, I sort of um, rebelled both against Shakespeare and against opera hmm. for the same reasons that there was there was so much money being thrown at them that it just made me angry that we were in doing our work so underfunded and so undersupported. I didn't quite know what to do about it, but I knew that it wasn't fair and it pissed me off and that that meant I was supposed to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And what was that? Um, I got to be a part of uh, small Black-owned companies. In Hartford, I was part of a company called The Performing Ensemble that that grew out of Operation Push to become its own thing. We made productions and we also traveled uh, Korea poem projects around the city and state to familiarize young people with Black poets that would go all the way back to Phyllis Wheatley. Um, and we would make these collages out of all of these poems and tour them and uh, introduce students, and then we make enough money over time that we'd be able to put on a, pr- a project, a production. And uh, and even then, you know, the idea that we all believe the same thing or see ourselves in the same way, I was working with people and um, they, they were, we were working on a comedy called Living Fat. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Yes, it was, a, that, it was that kind of comedy. I was going to say, that sounds like a Brown play. <laughs> yes, yes. And it, uh, it, was, it was funny. It was a satire about folks who suddenly got this windfall of money. And what did that money do for them? How did it corrupt them? And how did it reveal who they really were? Um, but it bordered on stereotypical, lots of caricatures and high farce. And I was like not having it. I was 23 and I was like, oh my God, why are we doing this? And finally, some of the elders in the company looked at me and said, if you want to do something different, you should do something different. What play do you want to do? 
And I said, I think we should do Wine in the Wilderness by Alice Childress. And so we did it. I directed it. And uh, um, it was a small production that we did in the church fellowship hall where most of our plays took place. And after it was over, that elder came to me and said, oh, now I see what kind of theater you want to make. Now I understand. Right. So it wasn't just you don't you don't get to just bitch about it and not do something about it. If you're dis, disgruntled, you need to take it in your own hands to make something that you're proud of and that you can lean into. And so that was like a really formative and important moment in my life as an artist. Um, I do think that that that's the beginning of a, of a kind of activism. Um, and it's gotten me in trouble a lot <laughs> over my career. Wow, I'm split for in two ways. I kind of want to um, walk down one path, but you're leading me down another. And so, well, trouble is just too tantalizing to pass up. So <laughs> tell us about the trouble you've encountered. Um, I, You know what, Lamar? <laughs> I have a nasty habit of telling the truth. Okay, that's beautiful. <laughs> so you're a soothsayer. Yep, I have a nasty habit of telling the truth. <laughs> in rooms where they don't want to hear it? Everywhere. Mm. Everywhere. I say it in rooms where they don't want to hear it, in other rooms where they think they want to hear what I have to say. Mm. And then I tell them the truth, and then they have issues. So, you know, I decided I was going to quit my job in insurance and do theater full-time. And I came to Seattle, um, um, basically they paid me to come and, um, that was awesome. But I started doing the plays I was interested in. And one day the head of the program said, you know, this is really wonderful. Your work is really wonderful, but you don't have to do only black plays. You can do any play. And, and what I program is, is this specifically? The University of Washington directing okay. program. Yeah. And I said to him, um, don't tell me I can't do black plays. Hmm. Tell me what the lessons are you want me to learn and I will go find the material appropriate. So tell me the skill you want me to get and I will find the right play. Um, because I didn't want to give into this idea that only Shakespeare was going to be the only one who could teach me verse. Right? I didn't believe that was true. So I thought, well, let me let me stand up for that. And then I got out of school and I sort of had that same mentality. Why can't we do a black play? And then I got hired at University of Washington on the faculty. And when I was hired, I said, this is the kind of work I make. Can I be tenured here? And they hired me. And then in the middle of my first term, before you get approved for tenure, they said the college is not going to know how to read your body of work. <laughs> what does that even mean? So when you go for tenure, you put together a portfolio. Uh-huh. And it goes through your department, through the school, to the college, to the college council. 
and the college council looks at your portfolio and your outside reviews and decides whether your research is worthy of tenure, right? So the year that I got tenure, we were like, black tenured folks were like 3% of all the faculty in the country was black and tenured. And the majority of those were black men. So it was a big deal. But they said to me, you know, you have to get some credits that the college can recognize. Mm, that's the word I was looking for. Which it, which meant they needed me to get regional theater lore credits. Right. And um, because how, this, because correct me if I'm wrong, this review board is white. <laughs> pr- primarily, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Primarily. And so they wouldn't know, you know, they wouldn't know some of the people that are essential to black the black theater canon. And they also wouldn't know that uh, a venue like in the community is as, as valuable as a, a Lord regional theater gig. Right. Um, so that that put me on a different path, um, wanting to make Lord professional work. And then I got in f- on fire for the idea that all of our work should be have as much money spent on it as white people's work. Which meant then I did want to work in the Lord gigs. I did want to work at Seattle Rep. And I did want their shops to have to figure out how to make whatever it was, the world, make it beautiful and make it urgent. Um, and I wanted us to have that black folks to have that I wanted the actors to make equity money right it doesn't mean that I discount the the less professionally uh, um, compensated but I wanted as much money spent on us as was being spent on other kinds of art hell yeah (laughs) Um, but you know that becomes that becomes another thing Lamar Mm. when you do that when you make that step, people in your community look back, look down on you. Mm. Now speak about that. You sold out. Yeah, yeah, that's the you're term. Sold out. You're not, you're not in the community anymore. Mm. You're not one of us. You're one of them. Why do you think that exists? Because it's not just you know that's not just you. That's every you know. That's every black artist, that's every black athlete, you know, that's anyone who achieves a certain level of status. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't hurt that our field is highly Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. Um, That entering the edifice requires a certain kind of cultural education. Mm-hmm. Because the building itself is racialized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Set up that way. Just the building itself. Mm-hmm. So I understand why some black folks don't feel like it belongs to them. But that's the problem is that we let white people believe that it belongs to them. It doesn't. Guess whose tax dollars all go up in there? Ours too. So we don't, you know, our donor class maybe doesn't give quite as much to theater as as white donor class does. But as long as they get a government grant of, of, of a dollar, some pennies in there belong to black folks, belong to Latin folks, belong to Asian folks, belong to indigenous folks. So 
um, it's all ours. And that's the thing that's really frustrating is you become sort of um, special to white folks. And when you're special to white folks, you're suddenly not of the people to your own community. And that's a, that can make for a, a lonely a lonely journey. Um, and leading is inherently lonely. <laughs> so um, that's that's and that's a lesson that no one teaches you when you're 20. Oh yeah, that's part of the job description. <laughs> Nobody teaches you that when you're 20. Hmm. Interesting. So it took me it took me 10 years to get people used to the fact that yes I'm going to talk about race and I don't think everyone is racist but I do think that people are intentionally oblivious to the role that race plays in so many of our decision making processes so for a good 15 years I've been whining about the fact that there were no people of color in decision making powers in any of the major theaters in the city it's beginning to change, um, but I was I was saying it, you know, the, the minute I got out of grad school, 1998. And there's a reason, I think, that I did not work at Seattle Rep until 2019. And there's a reason that once the Hansberry Project left ACT Theater in 2012 that I haven't worked there. And I may, I'm doing work on some things there now, but it was eight years without a job, not being asked to direct a play. It seems like, um, I'm curious about your thoughts on, because in the way that you are describing your journey, it seems like, um, for the, for these white institutions, these white theater institutions, um, that we, our work isn't ready until they're ready. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about um, learning how to... I maybe wasn't working in some of these places, but I was getting people in to work in some of those places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like in not hiring me, some theaters had to find other people to hire. Yeah. And sometimes they're people I knew. Sometimes they're people I mentored. Um, Did that you know, make you feel a certain way? Um, sometimes. Sometimes I felt discouraged. Like um, my work as an artist lacked value. And then I started to learn that adage that, you know, that you're always appreciated more abroad than you are at home. Mm, so true. <laughs> so I started to work around the country. Mm. Talk about that for a minute. It was glorious. Mm. It was gl- glorious. Where'd you, you know? go? Oh, um, where'd you go first? The first place I went was Alabama. Mm. I went to the Alabama Shakespeare Festival with Kia Corthron on a new play. And then we went to the Center Theater Group, mm-hmm. Mark Taper Forum, uh, Actors Theater of Louisville. Now, um, was that your first time down south? Uh, to work, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I My relatives are from North Carolina, or S- South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, so I... Um, 
Yeah, so I had been down for family reunions and that sort of thing, but to work, yeah. It was when I when I started to like realize I wasn't going to work in Seattle, so where else could I work? I love the the fact that theater is ephemeral and it's also uh, the downside. Yeah. Right? It's yeah. that you, it's ephemeral. <laughs> you set up that community, you're having good vibes, yep. you're feeding each other spiritually, and then it's over. Yep. You can't pin it down. Nope. And you can't get it back. <laughs> nope. <laughs> nope. Now, it, it sounds like... Um, no, it seems like there's 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 a lot of women who've been hugely influential in your on your path um, in your family. You talk about your mother, your aunt, um, your colleagues, and of course, um, playwrights, artists, other artists that you look up to and have been inspired by. Um, how has that played a role in the founding of the Hansberry Hansberry Project? The Hansberry Project was my attempt to stay home, right? I needed to have a way to make work at that level and not travel. And also to redirect money and resources into the community here to support artists. So, um, Kurt Beatty who was artistic director at a contemporary theater at that time had an, an impulse to do more diverse work through that theater. And he asked me to curate some plays. This story is often told. And I said, no. And I said, I would not curate some plays, but I would partner with him. And so Vivian Phillips and I, uh, agreed to work with act, uh, and they would uh, give us a play in their season every year that we would um, choose, cast, help market. And in exchange, Vivian and I would participate um, at the decision-making level in that organization. So we were in uh, management meetings. We were uh, on uh, periodically on board meetings. Um, and we basically worked for the theater and they had the only people of color on their staff for the five years that we were there. And in that time, we did productions, we did community conversations, we did panels, we did um, events. We, we hosted uh, Juneteenth events for four years, and um, they were formal events, you know, uh, black tie and all of that, um, to try to sort of open the community up and, uh, and it went really, really well. Um, the problem we had is that our intention was always to get our work in front of as large and broad an audience as we could, um, to get Black theater artists working out in the world. The way that I put it now is I'm so in love with Black people, I want to give other people the chance to fall in love with us too. And we were doing that. We, we were in folks were used to our being there and interested in our being there, but we weren't making money. 
Um, we were getting helping them get some grants and so forth, but we weren't making money. And they were going through a diff- difficult financial time. And so the metric slipped from our stated goal of a broad, diverse audience to their needed goal, which was how many black and brown bodies can we get in the audience? Mm, quantifying it. Yeah. So we had very different goals. Mm-hmm. And they decided they could not... Uh, afford us so we were cut loose mm-hmm. we left with our, our mailing list and two thousand dollars and we were on our way and you became an independent body yes yeah but but we're not 501c3 mm-hmm. so d- you've moved on since i mean well you're still working with the hansberry project but you in terms of directing you also you've been writing you teach obviously uh before we get to writing how what brought you to teaching what made you decide you know i'm ready to teach it goes all the way back to that when i got out of college Mm. and i was working with the performing ensemble some of the people in the company were trained that went to grad school and all that but the rest of us were not. We were just doing the work. We were developing a, a work ethic, a, a process, a craft. And, um, and we got better. Each of us was getting better by working. So when I got in a position to give people work, I, I'm like, this is my chance to grow the folks who can do the professional work that I want to see done. And so uh, it became really important to me to do some projects that I could take someone who like, who had never done theater before and put them in a project and mentor them and teach them the craft and give them their own way of working. So then they could work with someone else on material without me Again, it felt to me a lot like just dropping the pebble in the lake, right? So teaching became um, the second leg of the stool. If directing and um, owning the means of production is one, growing the talent to do excellent work is the other, the second leg. And the third leg is the writing, is the creating texts, is to not having to wait for someone to give us a play. say was like a, I mean, was there a teacher or a singular mentor that that truly inspired you, that changed everything? Yeah, when I was a, a, an undergraduate at Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, my, uh, my graduating class was 608 students. Hmm. Eight of them were black. Wow. <laughs> so um, when I was an undergraduate, I, after being dragged into that audition, I stayed because I had some community there mm-hmm. of people who wanted to make these things. And then this young teacher 
came from California. Uh, her name was Robin Hunt. Hmm. Uh, she is a white woman. She was, she was a Kansas, a, a California surfer girl. <laughs> and, uh, and she was so foreign to New England. She was such an outsider that mm. I related to that. Wow. Um, and uh, we had our first encounter in that I was required to audition in order to take a theater class. I was required to audition for their plays. And because I was just the kind of truth teller I was, even at 19, mm. I went to her and said, um, you all are doing our town, which is great. Uh, and if I'm the best Emily in auditions, will I get that part? <laughs> and she said, you know, I'm new here and they think that I am from another planet. So I think I'm going to make the play traditionally in a way that these folks will understand. Uh. And, and she and I talk about this now and she's like, oh, my God. I can't believe that you even talked to me. Um, <laughs> but um, but then she did this remarkable thing. She said, I, I won't cast you. I probably won't cast you. You do have to audition because that's a policy. But, but I don't know that I will cast you. Um, and I would like you to be my stage manager slash assistant director. So now I'm in all the production meetings. Now I'm hearing how she makes a decision about this and why it's that prop instead of this one. And all of a sudden, I'm on the other side. I got pulled onto the other side. And then I took a class that she taught, and the class was all women. Um, and when I was at Holy Cross my freshman year, it was only the third year that they had had women at the school. So... Uh, in my sophomore year, I took this class with her. It was all women. And our final project was to make a devised piece. Uh -huh. And she charged me with directing it. Wow. So that was your first directing job. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And I was like 19 years old. Um, so, yeah, she's been hugely influential. And when I came to Seattle, actually, I had decided that I was going to grad school and uh I was I was gonna go either to I was gonna go to Yale. I just decided I was going to Yale or I wouldn't go. And she said to me, you know, I think it's great that you're ready to go and you're the exact right kind of student you you should be for this time. Um, but just think about some other schools and we're doing some pretty good work out here. You might want to look at the University of Washington. And you know, the University of Washington then was a top five drama school. And it was a city where there was a Negro unit during the <laughs> federal theater project. Um, uh, Seattle had one, and Hartford, where I came from, had one. Wow. So that deep, rich history of black people here, there aren't many, there weren't many of us, but we had a history that made me say, oh, maybe I can go there. And then they paid me to come, and then. The rest is history, as they say. Right, right, right. My goodness. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Um, so tying it back to Shakespeare um, and your previous you know, answer about moving away from him to get a deeper understanding and connection with your own culture, 
finding her voice within that. You've told me that you found your way back to his work since. Um, how did that happen? And what do you feel about interpreting his work today? You know, do we, do we modify the text? Do we adapt it? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think uh, that any and all of those things are good things, right? I think that, that uh, there are people who are language purists, that it's about the turn of the phrase for them. Mm-hmm. And I think in that case, we should do the work as Shakespeare wrote it. But we should be mindful that it's going to come through our mouths, through our lives. And so we should unpack and, uh, and reassemble Shakespeare's work in ways that are authentic to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, what does and, that look like? Well, and I also, you know, I think that there is, there are lots of ways to do it. You know, everything from adapting a story to uh, really digging deep into non-traditional casting. Not colorblind casting, but non-traditional casting. Um, some people use the phrase color conscious. I'm not sure that I'm down with that either. But I think that when you when you decide to put a person of color in a Shakespeare play, that character is a character of color. It's not like I'm going to, that my Hamlet is going to be a white Hamlet. Can't ever be. Can't ever be. So I think that that in that that way of thinking about it, non-traditional casting means going deep, finding all the tentacles and all the ways that race actually informs the dynamic in the play. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that could be done by by an adaptation. You know, where we set Shakespeare. Um, one of my former students. He worked on the Scottish play, and he said it in the antebellum South, right? Mm-hmm. And you know who the who the witches become, and then you know is it is it a Confederate soldier? Is it a Union soldier? And what's the what does that say through the lens of race, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So I think adapting is a good thing. I think contemporary language adaptations are also good because. I want not just Shakespeare's language to get a a chance. I want the actual stories to be engaged with by a broad and diverse community. So, you know, the OSF did a whole project about adaptations of Shakespeare work. Yeah. Um, And some of those adaptations are absolutely gorgeous. Mm. They're not in Elizabethan English, mm-hmm. but they're gorgeous. So I think that they should be given a chance to be disseminated, to, be, to have legs, to be given voice. Here, here. Especially, you know, by authors who are still living. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that there's something in that of uh, um, doing exactly what Shakespeare did. Taking a story... Mm-hmm. and making it relevant for our time, mm. right? Which is what Shakespeare did.
interested in directing a Shakespeare play today? If it was the right treatment, I think I think I might be. You know, if I if I had the right vehicle to reach that broad and diverse audience. I'm not interested in doing the play just for people who already love Shakespeare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They don't they don't need me to do that. Right. They get other folks to do that. Right. Um, but if I found the right the right vehicle, the right approach to do the play. You know, um, there have been a couple of adaptations recently of things. You know how things reach a kind of zeitgeist? Oh, of course. And suddenly everyone has the same idea or mm-hmm. working on the same idea. Yeah. And then the same Shakespeare play gets produced in all over the country in theaters. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I won't say that I will never direct a Shakespeare play. Um. But I'm sort of liking right now that I have a foot in the new play camp, mm-hmm. and I have a foot in the classic black play camp. I love it. So I'm not sure that uh, that Shakespeare needs me yeah. as much as as much as Childress needs me, as much as um, Theodore Ward needs me, as much as you know. There's a whole list of them whose names we don't pay attention to, who need to continue to live and they're not going to live if we wait for white people to do them Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what are you working on now that you're excited about oh my goodness um i'm i'm finding myself being invited to create projects it just got announced that i'm going to direct for arts west um next year Mm -hmm. create a song cycle choreo poem something Mm-hmm. <laughs> for them uh, and that's exciting to me and that takes me back to my roots as a 20 year old mm. to making collages and traveling with them um, then last year I got a, com- a director's commission from Seattle Rep and uh, I'm waiting for permissions on a couple of uh, source documents and while I'm uh, that that I might adapt for my my work um, and I'm also writing a new play. And, uh, uh, and we've just uh, done a reading of um, The Rent Party, which is a play that I've been working on for a few years now. And now we're moving on to The Rent Party Immersive, which is a completely different way of dealing with the characters in The Rent Party play. Um, I want to actually have the house party that's, the, that's at the heart of the play. Well, wait, 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 let's roll back. For folks who are listening and, and who don't know, tell us about The Rent Party. The Rent Party is a play that began with the idea I was going to make a, an immersive project. I was going to make an immersive project because all of the ones I had seen had been white-led and telling white stories. And I wanted to tell a Black story in an immersive way. And um, I started out with this idea that there was this family, it's like three sisters, and um, and they were having a party to raise money um, to save the house. And um, I started meeting with the actors, and the, the primary response was, so what is this immersive thing? And then someone said, you know, it's like the dinner train 
you're in the middle of the of the mystery. And I was like, yes, it is. And then I thought, oh, I think I might need to actually write more of a backstory. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I had written a, a full-length play. Mm. And then we took a few years to like hone it and make it better. Um, but that, that idea of making an immersive work um, stuck with me. And for a while, I didn't know how to proceed with it because, why? Because I live in the fifth whitest city in the country. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I couldn't imagine making an immersive play about a rent party in a black neighborhood where all the people at the party were white. And my friend Peggy, who she passed away a couple of years ago, she said to me, well, just don't let anybody, black, anybody white be in the, in the, in the, in the party. And I said, well, I live in a white place. She said, well, make them all black. <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> and so then I decided that I was going to make the rent party. And um, we would maybe on some days run the actual traditional play. And then, you know, every couple of weeks we'll do the immersive so that the people who've seen the play can come to the party that's you get great. a discount if you dress in attire of 1968. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I decided that everyone, black and white alike, and everyone else as well, will arrive, have their picture taken with the Polaroid, and the Polaroid given back to them will be a picture of a black person from 1968. And so when they go into the room, the cast will treat them like the neighbors at that in that neighborhood and uh, and then the play will unfold around them through a series of events or happenings that would be scheduled and that the actors would both some of it would be set text and some of it would be completely improvised so this year we're going to work on making that happen make the immersive happen that is beautiful. I cannot wait to be a part of that. <laughs> yeah, so it's going to be a whole bunch of black folks. Oh, my God. And in Seattle, that really is monumental. It will, it will be, I hope. I mean, it will be in the sense that, like, when they all come together, when we all come together, we're going to be like, oh, my God, here we all are together. Yes, yes. yes. Privileging a black point of view. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's the Rent Party, and I'm working on Rent Party Immersive as one of my projects. That's fantastic. And now, to excite your curiosity, and in the spirit of infusing the world with more joy, I present to you some magic questions. If you could master one skill that you don't already have, what would it be? Hmm. Filmmaking. Mm, why is that? Um, I grew up, my dad was a photographer. My grandfather was a photographer. I've had cameras. I do still photography. I would like to combine that visual storytelling with the image. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Will you tell us, if you can recall, um, a time when you saved a life? could be an insect, could be an animal, could be a human being. I think 
you know, we began this conversation about my concern about arrogance. Mm. Um, I think I do that every day, Lamar. Oh, I can vouch for that. I think there's something about truth-telling and compassion that are life-saving. Oh, right on. Right on. At least I hope they are. Of course they are. I can't disagree with that at all. Um, All right, here's a, a more magical one. Okay. So you know when you're at a party and there's always one person who corners you when you're on your way to refresh your drink, get some more food, fix a plate, or on your way to the bathroom. And they bore you to tears. Yes. And you can't get a word in edgewise, you know? You've yeah. got they for about 15 minutes they're just talking your ear off. And you're like, gosh, how do I how do I get past this person? So you're at a party, and the guests at this party are Audrey Lord. Maya Angelou, Aretha Franklin, and Lorraine Hansberry. Who do you want to bore you to death? <laughs> Whoa. That might be an impossible question because I don't know. I don't know that any of those women are capable of being boring. <laughs> That's a perfect answer. Yeah, I don't know that any of them are capable of being born. Well, then let's let let me reframe it. Who do you want to corner you while you're on your way to fix your plate, freshen your drink, or go to the bathroom? I think right now mm-hmm. I'd be in a Audre Lord kind of place. Mm. Why is that? Yeah. I'm super invested in what it is to be a queer black woman. And though Hansberry was as well, um, there was less focus of that on that in her work. I want to figure out basically if if the two of them had a child, how could I be that? Wow! How could I be the daughter of Lorraine Hansberry and Audre Lorde? Oh man, that's that's what I would aspire to be. Is oh. actually that that the the. the the offspring of that, those threads. Ms. Val, you are on your way. <laughs> I think you've laid a path. No one, no one can doubt that. Your track record speaks for itself. Oh, thank you. Um, last but not least, our last question. Yep. Um, when you die, because we all will, if people forget everything about you, what's the one thing you want them to remember? She told the truth. Mm. You heard it first folks. Wow. Yeah, I think, Lamar, I think that that it goes along with this other thing that you and I have talked about before, which is, I think it's one of the bravest things that a person can do. And it's why I don't believe in safe space. I don't, I don't seek to find safe space. I seek to be brave in all spaces. Mm -hmm. And to tell the truth is to be, is that the bravest act. Gosh, so true. And lonely. Yes. Yeah. Um, And we won't die. Yes. We won't die from our loneliness. (laughs) We won't die. It can feel like it sometimes, but we really won't die from our loneliness. Oh, my gosh. So true. Uh, You don't know how I needed to hear that. (laughs) 
<laughs> uh, so that's that's my, my therapy dollars at work. Oh. <laughs> There's a, a couple of things that I carry with me all the time for my therapy sessions. One mm. of them is the phrase, oh, well. <laughs> so if someone tells you that they hated something, you just say, oh, well. Mm-hmm. And someone tells you they love something, oh, well. Mm-hmm. They have equal value. Mm. So, oh, well is one. And the other one is, will, will you die? Mm. If it fails, will you die? Because mm-hmm. almost nothing we do is so life-endangering that we'll die. That's so true. So, I, sh- ma- so I make a bad play. Uh, yep. I won't die. No. Nope. <laughs> I lose an argument or a debate. I won't die. Mm-hmm. I won't die. So, well, I'll be sure to bill your therapist. <laughs> yes, yes. Val, thank you so, so very, very much. Is there anything left unsaid? No, I don't think so. You've had me gabbing for an hour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the point. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you if you want them, if you want yourself to be found? Uh, I have a website at ValerieCurtisNewton.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I'm prevalent on the Hansberry website. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Val. You're welcome. (laughs) 